Many of you know Graydon Zorzi, his wife Kelsey. Graydon served the church uh, probably five, six years ago now. They've moved to New York where uh, Graydon is pursuing a, uh, a PhD and his wife Kelsey is serving in the United Nations. And we are delighted to have both of them here this morning with us and for Graydon to open God's word for us as, uh, during this morning's sermon. So Graydon, thank you for being here. Pray with me. Lord, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We know that you're present here with us. And we ask that the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today is Trinity Sunday, which is a notable feast in the church year because we're celebrating today a doctrine. The other feasts in the church year celebrate events. This is a doctrine, and the doctrine we're celebrating is the doctrine that the Son and the Spirit are fully God, co-equal with the Father. It's a lot to say about the Trinity, but one interesting thing about the Trinity is just, it's just hard to believe that it's the type of thing that people could have come up with on their own. We have enough trouble wrapping our minds around what it means to imagine that someone just dreamed this up as if this would be some convincing thing that would spread a, a belief system is uh, stretches credulity. The reason that we believe in the Trinity is because of God's self-revelation. And people have often thought about how it's possible that the creation could know the creator. And one way that this been, has, been, has been thought about is people ask, well, how could Hamlet know Shakespeare? How could, how could a character know the, the author? And the answer that's been given is, well, if, if Shakespeare wrote himself into the play, then Hamlet could know him. And in the same way, God has been writing himself into history from the very beginning. And the fullest way that he wrote himself into history is as Jesus, the eternal son stepping down into the world. So if we want to know the triune God, the best way to know the triune God is by studying Jesus. In fact, that's how we know that God is triune. We have the one God of Abraham and Isaac and Moses coming into the world as the son of the father who sends the spirit. So they're three in one. The aspect of that triune God that we're going to study today comes in an episode of healing. If you, if you study Jesus's life in order to learn about God, you'll notice that one thing he spends quite a lot of time doing is healing people. And we love to hear about, about healing because we so often need healing. We pray for people who are suffering near us or for ourselves. And it can be very encouraging to read about how God has healed people. At the same time, reading about healing can be frustrating because so often the healing that we pray for doesn't come. And we look and we say, God, you could do this. You could heal. You could heal. Why? Why won't you? So we're going to ask, looking at this one moment in Jesus's life, why Jesus healed? Why does God heal? And then why didn't Jesus heal? Why doesn't, why doesn't he heal? Because if you, if you look at this passage closely, you'll notice that there's a healing here, but there's also quite a lot of not healing. So we're going to be looking at this one moment and the sermon series that this sermon is part of is called The Unforgiving Minute. And it's looking at, at moments in salvation history that reveal something important to us. And this moment that we're looking at is a moment of healing and we're going to see 
what important things that shows us about God and his character and what he's doing in history and then how we should respond to that. So why does Jesus heal? That's the first question we want to ask. And the answer is straightforward. Jesus heals for holiness. To get to that answer, let me recount the story to you briefly. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, the great city. It's a feast day, and he goes to uh, the pool of Bethesda, where a number of invalids and cripples are uh, lying out uh, by the pool. And he comes to one man in particular who's been a cripple for 38 years, asks him, if he would like to be healed. And this man tells this story about how he can't get down to the pool when the water's stirred up. Apparently there was a belief at the time that when the water of the pool was stirred up, that was a sign that an angel was present. And so whoever made it down to the pool first had a chance of being healed. And this man, you can see his sadness and he, he's at this pool day after day. He's been crippled for 38 years. Who knows how many days he's been at this pool and he cannot get down to that pool. He thinks if I could just make it down there at the exact right moment, I would be able to be healed, but there's no one to take him there and he can't make it there himself fast enough. And Jesus heals him. Jesus tells him to walk, ends his 38 years as an invalid. And now this man is able to walk. And if we're wondering why Jesus does this, the answer to why Jesus does it comes a little bit later in this section when Jesus finds the man again. Look down to verse 14 with me. It says, Afterward, Jesus found him, that's the man he healed, found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, some people reading this passage think that, 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 that that's a suggestion that this man's physical disabilities were the result of his own sin in some way. And so if he were to sin again, then something worse might happen to him. I have trouble with that because it's hard to imagine what physical disability would be worse than 38 years of being fully crippled. So it seems a little bit unlikely to me. It seems much more likely that what Jesus is talking about is a far more serious thing that he's encouraging this man to avoid. And to see what that is, we need to remember the context of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus begins his public ministry, he goes out with a certain proclamation. And the way that proclamation is introduced in the Gospels, it's clear that this is the message that Jesus preaches again and again and again wherever he is. We see that message uh, in, in the Gospel of Mark. This is Mark 1, verses 14 to 15. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so this is Jesus' constant message. The, 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 the undertone to everything else he does is this need for repentance because God's kingdom is at hand. And so in telling this man to stop sinning in order that nothing worse may happen, it's, I think, fairly likely that what Jesus has in mind is the danger of eternal separation from God. So the reason Jesus heals this man is as a sign pointing to this need for deeper healing. The physical healing is a sign pointing to the need for spiritual healing. So what Jesus is doing as a healer is all about reconciliation. And in doing the work of healing and the work of reconciliation, Jesus insists that what he's doing is exactly what the Father has been doing 
throughout history. Look at verse 16. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So they're worried that Jesus is breaking the Sabbath by healing. But listen to what Jesus says. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. So is he breaking the Sabbath? No. Just as God, after he finished creation on the seventh day, rested from his work of creation, and then took up the work of reconciliation, the thing that God has been doing throughout history, so also Jesus on this Sabbath is engaged in the work of reconciliation. That's why he's healing. He's bringing people back into relationship with God. It's the purpose of the healing. That's what we're supposed to be doing on Sabbaths as well. We rest from the work of producing and creating in order to engage in the work of connecting with God, of responding to what Jesus himself did on this Sabbath. and in his ministry in general. So if that's why Jesus heals, if it's for holiness, if that's clear, maybe a harder question is why doesn't Jesus heal? There were a whole lot of invalids there. It wouldn't have been any harder for Jesus to heal all of them. Just as easy for him. He could have healed every single one of them. with No effort whatsoever. And yet he only healed one. You know, one reason why, one clear thing that's not the reason why he healed this guy, it's not because this guy was some spiritual superstar. That is very clear in this passage. In fact, the way, the way John writes this account, it's pretty clear that this guy doesn't come off smelling like a rose. So look at this. He's healed, but he doesn't bother to get the name. He doesn't even get Jesus' name. He had 38 years. This guy just tells him, get up and walk. And then when He's confronted about it. He says, I don't know who did it. How do you not get a name? And as soon as he's confronted about carrying his, his mat, which is supposedly breaking this rule in the Old Testament, doesn't seem like it's actually breaking that rule, but that's what the Pharisees are thinking. He immediately passes the blame. He says, oh, I'm just doing this because the guy who healed me, he just healed you from 38 years. You're, you're immediately turning and blaming him. And then Jesus finds him. He doesn't find Jesus later. Jesus comes up to him and finds him in the temple and immediately he goes and rats him out and says, oh yeah, it was Jesus. This is the guy who healed me to the very people who are seeking to persecute him. This guy receiving the healing is not some paragon of virtue. That's not why he receives the healing. It's grace. It's grace in the presence of, 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 of a lack of, of dessert. So why one? Why one and not all? To answer that question, notice how people hate this healing. Notice the response. Jesus performs this amazing miracle and the response is persecution. But the thing that people respond to with persecution is the very thing that God the Father habitually does. Just after what you have printed in your leaflet in verse 19, Jesus says something that's important. Let me read this to you. You don't have it in your leaflet, so just listen. So Jesus said to them, he's talking to the, uh, the, the leaders who are concerned about him doing the, taking these actions on the Sabbath. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. The very thing that God is doing and has been doing 
to try to save us, to reconcile us to ourselves, to rescue us from the consequences of our decisions. God the Son comes down to do and people hate him for it and want to kill him for it. Notice, by the way, the the way God reveals himself as a trinity. Here's the Son talking about his full harmony with the Father. We hate this spiritual healing. We, hate, we want the physical healing, yes, but we hate the spiritual healing because it demands death of us. The Bible's clear about this. In Romans, it says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It's death. This isn't emerging into a new life in some cute and friendly way like a, like a little sweet little furry caterpillar that curls up into a ball for a little while and then emerges as a beautiful butterfly. This is a death like Jesus's. Crucifixion is the parallel that God uses to try to explain how difficult it is for a human to accept the kind of healing that he's offering us. to see why this spiritual healing is so difficult and how it's connected to the physical healing, we need to recognize that the only reason that we have in general need for physical healing is because we all have a need for spiritual healing. I don't mean in each of our individual lives. I mean as as humanity in general. And we see that in the connection between two critical verses at the very beginning of the Bible that explain something about what God's been doing in the world. That's Genesis 3.22 and Genesis 3.15. Let me explain to you this connection because it's, it's just so essential to understanding what God is doing and healing and not healing. Genesis 3.22 is when God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden. So this is after they've sinned and their penalty is being kicked out of the garden or part of their penalty. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life cuts humans off from the tree of life that would have allowed us to live forever, even after sin. We could have lived forever with the tree of life. You need to see the connection between that verse and Genesis 3.15, which is an f- even more famous verse. Genesis 3.15 is referred to as the proto-euangelion. It's the proto-gospel, the first gospel, the pre-gospel. It's the first promise that God makes to reconcile humans to himself, to solve this problem that's been created by human sin. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, he's talking to the serpent, serpent, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's a promise to put enmity, to put adversity between humans and evil, to help us to stop loving evil, to begin to hate evil again, and to turn back toward loving the good. What's the connection? Why is Genesis 3.15 connected to Genesis 3.22? Because both are expressions of grace. 
were cut off from the tree of life as grace. Because if we could take from the tree of life and our status of rebellion against the God who made us, we would do it and we would live forever and we would be miserable. We would create an everlasting hell on earth. Because apart from God, we are cruel. We are lost. We are sad. The thing that we need is not to live and live and live. The thing that we need is to live in relationship to the one in whose image we're made. The one who fills our heart with meaning and with life and with hope. Physical problems are permitted to humanity in general in order to help us recognize our dependence on God. And Jesus heals and God heals not everyone, but some, in order to point us to the fact that the one who could restore us in the way that we need to be restored spiritually is among us, is at work among us. So Jesus had work to do on this Sabbath. And he continued to do work throughout his ministry until he rested, also on a Sabbath. After his work had been accomplished on the cross, his work of reconciliation, he also rested in the grave. The healing that Jesus is offering us demands death of us, figuratively, morally. But in order to accomplish that, that work of reconciliation, Jesus suffered death truly. He suffered death like none of us will ever know it. The second death that's talked about in Revelation. A death far more profound than any human could experience because no human has known the closest of connection between the Father and the Son who are fully united and yet were somehow torn apart in some vital, real way when Jesus suffered on the cross for the sin that all of us have committed. And because Jesus accomplished that, he can become our Sabbath rest. That's what it talks about in Hebrews 4.3. For we who have believed enter that rest. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all died. And he died that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. That's 2 Corinthians. So the question in front of us is, do you want to be healed? I know you want to be physically healed. There are some here that are suffering. There are many here who know, many more here who know people who are suffering. And we want the physical healing. We want it desperately. And we should pray for it. We should ask God for it. But do you want the spiritual healing? Answering that question, we have to understand that this is real. This is not a story that's nice and communicates a lovely message but didn't happen. And there's evidence that this is real. So this pool is called the Pool of Bethesda. People um, recently re read this, scholars, and they said, oh, well, okay, it's a five-sided pool, right? It's described as having five colonnades. A colonnade is like a covered walkway. So people said, okay, five, side, five colonnades. That's a, that would be a, penta a pentagon. And we know that there were no pentagons and no pentagonal pools in Jerusalem around this time. It just didn't exist. So what that means is that John must have been writing this gospel or whoever wrote it must have written this 
long after Jesus died in, at the end of the first century. And he used the number five symbolically because we all know those early Christians were anti-Semitic and he hated the law. And so the five represents the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and it's supposed to be a way of getting in a little jab at the Jews. So that was what people thought. And then they found the pool. <laughs> and it wasn't a Pentagon. It did have five colonnades. Right, by the, right, by, right there by the pool of Bethesda. But it was a, a square, so four sides, and then the fifth ran down the middle. It's an eyewitness. He wrote about it having five sides because he was there. He saw it happen. It's a real thing that happened. God stepped down into the world to offer us this healing, and we really need to deal with that offer. So do we want to be healed? It is going to be about dying to ourselves. That is going to, it is, it is not easy. And I want to help us understand why, why it's a death to ourselves. And probably the, the, the best illustration of this that I've ever come across comes in one of the best books about hell that I've ever read, which is C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce is just a magnificent book. It's short, it's accessible, it's fun to read. If you haven't read it, read it. That's, it'll, it'll, be wonderful. You'll love it. In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis tells of people who are coming to the gates of heaven and being offered a chance to enter. And each one, in order to enter, would have to give up whatever it is that has begun, that has replaced God in their lives. Whatever love has grown out of proportion and, and become their very identity. And it's sometimes things that are, begin innocent. So one woman is so in, so in love with her son. She's put her son on such a pedestal that he's replaced God in her life. He's become more important to her than God. So for her to turn to Christ, to accept this spiritual healing, this reconciliation that she would need, it would mean decentering her son from her life. And she won't do it because if she were to do it, it would totally destroy who she is. Her whole identity for years and years and years and years has been about her son and about the way her son makes her feel valued and important and about how amazing he is. And if she were to put him in his place, and put God in his place, it would change her. And she's not willing to do it. And she refuses entrance into heaven. What is it for you? What is it for us? In thinking about that, we should think about what's going on in our culture in general. And our culture is one that celebrates expressive freedom. The freedom that supposedly comes from expressing outside what is, what's internal to us. Be true to yourself. Know who you are, be who you are, express yourself. And sometimes that's about sexuality and sexual expression, and we know that that can be destructive, but sometimes it's about things that are seemingly innocuous. Like, for example, introversion. It's very popular to identify as an introvert, to think of yourself as an introvert. I happen to think that that's an interesting way to think about people. But do you ever find yourself around people, maybe even your family, and looking forward to being alone in order to be happy. Maybe alone with your phone. If only, if only I could get away from these people and be by myself, then I would really be, be happy and whole. That would be the good life. I mean, okay, look, we all need times to recharge. There's nothing wrong with being alone, but there's, it can be an excuse. The idea that, oh, I'm an introvert. I, and it can be an excuse to try to escape from people. The things that the ways that we fall short, the ways that we sin, the things that we need to repent of are usually about relationships. Do the people you're closest to you get your best? 
Or are you giving not your best to the people closest to you and the people who get your best are people who are less important to you? Are you living with purity and integrity? What about the people in your circles, your social circles, school circles, work circles, the people that you could love at cost to yourself or could harm for your benefit? How are you handling those relationships? Repent right now. Repent so that no worse may happen to you. But to repent, we don't, I don't want us to just feel sad and then move on and forget it. In order to, to repent is to, to turn, to accept this, this, this terrible but wonderful work that God is looking to do in our lives. And in order to make that real, it can be very helpful to talk to someone about it. Who do you need to talk to in order to help what you're thinking about and feeling about right now to actually be real? and not just be something that helps you to feel a little better right now. It's a little cathartic, but then you get to move on and continue living the exact life you've always lived. And let's ask ourselves, have we been reconciled to God? Do we see the light of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ? The God on whom everything depends is the gentle healer. We don't repent in order to get something from God. We repent because of what God has done for us. Remember, this story is about grace. We're like that invalid who's healed from 38 years and doesn't respond all that well, doesn't deserve the healing, doesn't respond all that well to the healing. Let's recognize that about ourselves and let's live up to what we've already received. Let's respond to this incredible grace that God has poured out for us in his son on the cross. And just as he rested from his work in the grave and then rose to new life, let's enter that Sabbath rest that's made possible by that work. Lord, we trust you. We love you. You are glorious and great. And we thank you for all that you have done in history to help us to return to you, Lord. We thank you even for the ways that you allow us to suffer. It's hard to be thankful for them, Lord. We do pray that you would heal us, heal our bodies. But even more than that, Lord, help us to see in the midst of the pain that we feel and that though our loved ones feel, help us to see our dependence on you, our need for you. Help us to know that this light momentary affliction is as nothing compared with the weight of eternal glory that is coming to those who love Christ. For we look not to things that are seen, but to the unseen. For what is seen is transitory, but what is unseen is eternal. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.